The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. Welcome to the True Tone Lounge. I'm your host, Zach Childs. Today, our guest is Jed Hughes. Jed Hi. Hughes is a highly respected sideman, having worked with everyone from Patty Loveless to Rodney Crowell and Vince Gill and Emmylou Harris. As a session man, he's worked with a Little Big Town and Dirks Bentley and all sorts of artists in the recording studio. He's a songwriter. He's had a, a, a solo career and recently uh, released his album, West. And he's been out on the road uh, promoting it, uh, opening shows for Vince Gill and doing double duty by also playing in his band. So, yeah. Honor to have you here, Jed. Thank yeah, you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yes. Well, tell me a bit about growing up in Australia and how music kind of entered your life. Uh, well, I grew up in a really small town, um, just a little farming town called Quorn. And... Um, uh, we had a little sort of uh, sheep farm. My dad was like a sheep farmer, sharecropper, and local handyman. So um, we had a cool little place outside of town. And my dad was also the local campfire guitar hero. And he had these thick folders full of handwritten lyrics and chords above the above the lyrics. And he had a really nice record collection and every cassette tape made by Slim Dusty who is our Australian country folk hero. You know music was always happening and there was always we had an upright piano and my dad had an aria uh, guitar with an action this high and um, country music playing in the house all the time. AM radio which was um, a lot of 70s kind of <laughs> rock and roll and like uh, 70s and 80s, I guess, AM radio. Um, so in the 80s, it was, um, it was still pretty, I mean, cons you know, compared to today, primitive. We had, I think we had three TV stations, the ABC, um, a local TV station, and um, I think SBS came <laughs> in my early teens. And so uh, we had a local radio station, 5AU 1242, outside of Port Augusta, which is about half an hour away. And then my parents, on Saturday nights, um, they would broadcast Saturday Night Country which was a couple of hours of country music broadcast Australia-wide. And my parents would record the shows on cassette as much as they could get, you know, usually a 120-minute cassette. And so I would get all this new music on Sunday morning for my parents being up all night. Or, you know, like, I think it came on at midnight, and then they would usually 
pass out around two o'clock. But my dad loved country music so much, and does, that he, uh, he would stay up and record the show for me and tell me about what he heard last night on Sunday. So, yeah, between those cassette tapes and listening to records that my dad had, um, I was way into it right from the get-go. Yeah. What's an early album that was, was influential? You know, the cover I remember really well was a, a live Woodstock um, record that my dad had, which I'm pretty sure Jimi Hendrix was on the cover of that. And I just remember thinking, man, that guy has the most amazing hair. And because it was just kind of a headshot of him. Right. And I looked on the inside and I think there was a picture of him playing the White Strat. And I would go through all the records to find the pictures with guitars because that was... Uh, I had some guitar magazines, but even stuff like that was just kind of scarce where I grew up. So um, there was a, a country guy called Reg Lindsay and he had a, his cover had a custom telly from the late 60s with the binding and I thought that was really cool looking. Um, and then the record I think that I listened to a lot was the Live at Folsom Prison Johnny Cash record. Yeah. I loved hearing people clap and I didn't know they, didn't really register that, that you know, they were all inmates. I just loved the fact that I could hear the crowd responding to him play, and it just sounded exciting. And a lot, the album has a lot of energy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you start really getting serious about the guitar? Um, not till like nine and ten, probably. I started singing before I started playing, and my dad would play guitar for me, and we would have these parties, and... You know, I'd be passed out on a couch and my dad would come into the room <laughs> and say, come on, come and sing some songs. <laughs> I don't want to, I'm Come on, just do it. All right. So he would play guitar and I would sing. And um, What were some of the songs he'd sing? I used to sing these Australian folk, they're called bush ballads. Okay. Songs about the Australian outback and... Um, a lot of them were written by a guy called John Williamson, who I loved and still love. Um, he's a great Australian storyteller. And then, uh, so I would sing some of his songs, and my dad would back me up. And then I started competing in these talent quests when, okay. I, was, when I was eight. And my first one uh, was uh, my first big hit, <laughs> which I didn't write. But uh, one, the talent quest, was a song called Big Bad Bush Bush Ranger. And even as a 37-year-old, I get reminded of that constantly from my Australian friends within the music business. I'll always be the Big Bad Bush Bush Ranger. Um, so there's a tendency, especially for uh, someone that starts you know, into music as a, as a child, and of course, you have those reactions from the audience that are based on you being a child and the mm. fact there's this precociousness and the fact that, so then as you get older, you know, some artists uh, kind of, they don't get past that and they kind of, they stop because they, they're, 
their their fame was kind of based on them being a cute kid and mm. performing. Mm. And uh, so obviously at some point you started getting more serious about music and, and not just uh, relying on your your cute factor. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> Or is it still is it still working for you today? <laughs> I don't know. You'd have to ask my wife that. Um, yeah, I think I think what happened was when I got into guitar, which was like around nine and ten, um, and because I lived in pretty remote sort of area, uh, it became a part of my sort of escapism for my imagination and my dreaming myself out of my reality in the future. Because all the records I was eyeballing and listening to were made in the USA and a lot of them were recorded in Nashville. So I started to, you know, dream up this life. Like one day, you know, that's, that's where I'll go and that's where I'll be. And I just became all consumed with all things music, all things guitar. And um, when I was 15, my parents sold that little farm and we moved east to the east coast. And for me to go to a more sort of specialized music kind of high school, which I dropped out of. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't having that. Um, I had a great music teacher but that was the only thing I really cared about. So I was failing every other subject. Um, but what I did manage to do was get a gig touring Australia when I was 16, playing in a country band. And I knew I wanted to get to America and I knew I had to make some money somehow to get there. So my parents let me leave school, tour Australia, saved up all my money and uh, bought a ticket to America when I was 18. Applied to a college in Texas. Leveland. Leveland, South Plains College, uh, which I'd heard about through a friend of mine um, who I'd been playing, who introduced me to bluegrass music when I was 15 and 16. And I became pretty consumed with that for a while. And um, he told me about this college. And so I thought, you know, what better way to sort of make an introduction or find an introduction to America and the culture and life over here. Just kind of ease my way in, go to school for a little while and try to meet some people and that's how that happened.
So you arrive in Texas and you're at, you know, you're at South Plains College. So what kind of culture shock did you experience? Or, were you, or was it something that you were ready to embrace? Um, well, I was terrified. I mean, I didn't know anybody. Um, I remember the first time I said g'day to somebody and they looked at me like I was an alien, which I was, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, but people, you know, I made a lot of friends really quick because there were so many other kids as passionate about music as what I was. And it was the first time I really felt, you know, kind of a, like there were some kindred spirits around me and, um, you know, made really good friends with this guy called Dan Bletz, who, you know, we were both obsessed with Tony Rice and um, wearing out Bluegrass Records and um, another really good friend of mine, Ben Atkins, who had a kind of Texas country band we would play every weekend, play these, you know, funky bars and um, drive all over Texas and play Texas music, which a lot of the artists I haven't heard of, I hadn't heard of at that point, like Robert L. Keane and um, Jack Ingram and, um, you know, all of these amazing guys making records that hadn't quite reached Australia. Yeah. Uh, it was it was awesome, man. I had a ball. How how was your playing being formed and changed by being at South Plains? I guess it was. Um, I actually started to become more aware of songwriting, and starting to sort of formulate a bit of a plan about a solo career and writing songs. Um, singing and playing guitar. Um, even though I was still sort of in the background a bit in those, you know, ensembles and stuff, that's what I started to daydream about doing. Um, so I think more than anything, I was just playing a lot, like every day, hours and hours a day. Which is what it takes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah which was great. Yeah. So at what point did you decide that you needed to move to Nashville? I'm sure you probably wanted to do that from the beginning. But yeah. yeah. Um, when I met Terry McBride, he came to the college. One of his good friends, Steve Williams, was one of my teachers. Um, I loved Steve and his guitar playing. And uh, he said, Terry McBride's going to come to the school and do a bit of a workshop talk on the Nashville music industry and how things work in Nashville. And, and just to, to let make sure people that, that aren't aware of Terry McBride, Terry McBride spent time you know, playing with Delbert McClinton and with Brooks and Dunn and had a, a solo you know, career, it was called McBride and the Ride with mm -hmm. a, a band and he's continued to be a successful you know, songwriter and artist his own right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's had dozens of hits and incredible writer and um, he and I hit it off right off the bat and and kind of became mates and he asked me what I was going to do when I was finished college and I said I don't know, you know, I might 
go to Austin because I had been playing in Austin and I kind of dug it down there. Or I might go to Nashville, but I don't know anybody up there. And he said, well, if you come to Nashville, um, I'll help you out. We can try to write some songs, uh, try to get something going, do anything I can. And uh, that's what I ended up doing. Slept on his couch for a while and then I moved to Antioch not long after that. How did the Patty Loveless gig come about? That, that was your first major gig in town, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, that came about through Billy Thomas, who, full circle, I've just been touring with the last couple of years with Vince. Yeah, because he's a drummer with Vince Gill and with the Time Jumpers and was in McBride and the Ride. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I was flat broke when I moved here. Like, I hadn't... I had nothing. I had a Squire Telecaster, a couple of pedals, an acoustic guitar, and about 300 bucks in the bank. Um, but they still let me in the country. <laughs> um, so my parents wired me some money and I bought a bed and a boombox or something. Um, and Terry, Billy had told Terry that Patty was looking for a guitar player, rhythm guitar player, harmony singer. And they were having auditions in a couple of weeks and he could get me an audition. I said, great, you know, I'm broke. I need a gig, <laughs> I need a job. Um, so they said, yeah, look, we've got you a slot so you can have a crack at it. So I went to Phonolux and I bought every Patty Loveless record they had, which I think it was maybe nine or ten CDs and they said you know learned I think it was like three or four songs but I went ahead and learned all of them I learned her whole repertoire and I spent two weeks you know learning 80 90 songs and I learned all the guitar parts on rhythm I learned the solos I learned every single thing I could. <laughs> All the words, I mean, failure was not an option because <laughs> I was so broke. Um, I was like, I got to get this gig. That's, that's amazing. This, and because that's yeah, just the amount of work that you put in there because you had to. Yeah. You felt like you know, failure wasn't an option. Yeah. Le learning all those, because I bet no one else came in as prepared as you did. Um, yeah, I don't know. The, whoever else came in, I mean, it sounded great. I was in the waiting room and I was like, oh boy, these guys are awesome, you know. Um, but I think the one thing I had going for me was that, and um, Emery Gordy had played a lot of the guitar parts and he happened to be in the room for the audition. I think he appreciated the fact that I'd taken the time to, you know, even learn like little passing runs and things. He was like, why have you learned all these songs? Because <laughs> I told him, I was like, you can throw anything at me, I know them all. Um, he was like, wow, you know, it's crazy. So, um, But you, you gained his respect. I guess so, yeah. yeah. And then the next day they called me and they were like, what are you doing Friday night? And I said, nothing. 
maybe going bowling, I don't know. And um, they said, would you come and play the Opry with us? And I was like, yeah, I will. So, so how long have you been in town at this point? Uh, like maybe two months. Okay, two months in town, and you're going to play with a major country artist, and your first gig is on the Grand Ole Opry. <laughs> yeah, no, it's hilarious. Um, but the thing was, Emery was like, you know, we need you to play mandolin. And I was like, well, I don't have a mandolin, but I know how to play one. Mm -hmm. um, so I just need to borrow one. He was like, yeah, well, I've got, a, I've got an old mandolin. He's like, have you ever heard of a guy called Lloyd Lowe? And I was like, <laughs> kind of laughing. I was like, no, actually, I haven't. Yeah. I was like, what does that mean? He said, well, it's an old Gibson mandolin. And, you know, I'll, I'll show it to you, see if you like it. Yeah. I was like, all right, great. So um, he bought this mandolin and I played it and I was like, this is a nice mandolin. And then years later, you know, of course, I sort of learned all about Lloyd Lower and how rare those mandolins are and how mm. great they are. Yeah, those are the, of mandolin, they're the Stradivarius of mandolins. Yeah. Yeah, the Lloyd Lower uh, Gibson F5s. Yeah. yeah, yeah, incredible. So that was my first gig. And then Friday night, they were like, what are you doing Sunday? And I said, nothing. Um, they said, would you jump on a bus with us and go to Merlefest and play Patty's set at Merlefest? And I said, yeah, that sounds fun. Can I play guitar? <laughs> I'm not sure I could play a whole show on mandolin. They were like, yeah, yeah, we want you to play guitar. So I played acoustic guitar and sang a couple with Patty, and it was crazy. And then I toured with Patty for the next 18 months. We did the Down from the Mountain tour, um, which was a summer tour. Right, and so there were a lot of other acts on those on those bills, like there were Alison Krauss and Amy Lou and Ricky yeah. Skaggs. A bunch of people were on those those shows. Yeah, Ralph Stanley. Yeah. So you were meeting um, a lot, Black. meeting a lot of other players and artists. And yeah, it was crazy. It was like, it was like all the crazy things I had dreamed when I was in Australia. Suddenly, I was like eating catering with these people, like backstage at shows and becoming mates with them, and like jamming with Ron Block and Dan Tominsky, and it was wild. The first day on that tour, I was singing with Patty in the dressing room and. In walked Emmy Lou, singing like the high harmony part, and I was like, I think I just stopped singing. I was <sighs> like, words stopped coming out of my mouth, and she, her voice just like filled the room, and I was like, this is crazy. And then I got a gig with her years years later, right? Which was another, you know, dream. Check that one out. You know, again working with Emery, you know, I, you know working with Elvis and Emilou and all his, you know, producing his wife, Patty Loveless, and so what were some things that you learned working with Emery? Or was it just kind of things were rubbing off? Or You know, I think one of the cool things I learned from him was that um, it was okay to be myself on sessions that I played for him, which only ended up being a handful of records. But he... What he liked about my playing was um, the fact that it, I wasn't trying to play like anybody else. I was just sort of very reactionary, I think, in my playing. And 
he liked me taking chances. And it, it was cool to be encouraged to do that because I feel like that's become part of my playing in general is that I'm just constantly freaking myself out or scaring myself by what I'm doing. And a lot of times it doesn't work, but the times when it does work, um, it feels really good and it's fun. And he encouraged that early on and it was cool. The first record I did with him was a Patty record called, I think it's called On My Way Home. Yeah, it was cool. He, he was hilarious. And then, you know, you would play something and he, was, he would say something like, yeah, 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 that's great. You know, save that for your record. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good comment. Save that for your record. In other words, I don't want that. <laughs> yeah, what else you got? This is awesome. Then about, about that time, you, you get, a, you get a, a solo deal with Capital. Yeah. And, uh, oh, with MCA. With MCA. Yeah. Okay. Which was what I wanted, you know, that was my dream was to be on MCA because Vince was on there and um, a lot of my favorite records came from there, you know. Um, Lyle Lovett records, you know, Tony Brown had produced so many country records that I, I really liked and that was where I wanted to be. And David Conrad signed me there in 19, well, in 2003, I think that was. And I made a record for them. Solar record. That was Transcontinental? Transcontinental, yeah. Yeah. Which Terry produced. Okay. Um, and, you know, it seemed like everything was falling into place, just as I dreamed it. And it mm -hmm. was. It was crazy. It was, it was you know, from 11,000 miles away, how I envisioned everything happening. Um, but then there was a regime change. Yeah. Yeah, yeah then they merged uh, with another big label called DreamWorks and they brought in a bunch of their own artists and a lot of people that were working on my record that had been to see me play and that I was friends with got let go all within, you know, a week or two. And, um, and I didn't, you know, I just didn't know what to do. I was like didn't have anybody in my corner and, you know, that all sort of fell apart. Um, and I was pretty devastated, you know. I didn't know what to do, you know. I'd hung so much of my um, creative worth in that working. And when it didn't work, I was pretty disillusioned. But but you didn't give up and you, uh, you, you started, how did, you started a long relationship with Rodney Crowell. Yeah. So was was that kind of where things went from the you know the 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 record deal kind of you know kind of fading out and then you kind of moved on to working with him? Well, um, the session work or kind of yeah. He was. We had stayed in touch and I was playing on demos for him and trying to write some songs with him even though I was so intimidated being in the room with him. Um, we, we wrote a few things and then I got signed to Capitol. Okay. And I was like, all right, here we go. This is my second chance, you know, mm -hmm. this is gonna be awesome. That did not work out. 
Was, was that uh, the one that Tom Bukovac was going to do some yeah. production on? Yeah, we yeah. made it. What I felt like was a great record. Um, Tom Bukovac produced it, and um, we had Steve Ferroni come in and play drums. It was wow. the first session he'd ever played in Nashville. He couldn't have been cooler. It was a great cast. It was uh, Dave Santos, Dan Dugmore, me, um, Greg Morrow played the other half of the tracking sessions on drums. It was incredible. Um, and then Tom and I played a lot of guitars. And uh, that just never saw the light of day. And eventually I just asked out of my deal because I was... I spent another year and a half after we handed that in trying to write a single country single, which I didn't really know what that meant or how to do it or nobody seemed to be able to tell me either. So I wrote myself into the ground pretty much and was just miserable by the end of that. So I went and had breakfast with Mike Duncan and he kindly let me out of my deal. <laughs> and I was free to uh, figure out the next part of the journey. So that seems like the transition into the, the doing more session work and doing yeah. more, you know, sideman work. And you were you were touring with Rodney, and then mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier, you know, getting to play with Amy Lou. So Amy and and Rodney, you know, made some made two you know records together, mm. and they did the tour. And you were you were part of the the touring band. Yeah, and I guess you played on the, some of the records too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I played on a session for Old Yellow Moon and a couple of the songs. And Rodney called me up and he said, hey man, why don't you grab your B-bender and come out on the road with us for a year and we'll go tour this record. I said, yeah, great. It sounds fun. Looking at the uh, performances and set lists, there was a lot of kind of back catalog of hot band you know, material that y'all did. Yeah. I mean, obviously there was you know, material off the new record, and then there was some, you know, some of Rodney's solo stuff, and but there was a lot of it was coming from, uh, they were doing a lot of hot bands, so you were playing like Luxury Liner and all these, yeah. these you know, Albert Lee and kind of James Burton, you know, yeah. kind of tunes where you're having to, and you were playing a telly, and, yeah. and uh, was, that, was that a thrill to kind of step into that, that kind of seat? Yeah, it was, it was because um, I had studied that style of guitar playing a lot when I was in Australia. I had a Albert Lee video um, that, my, that I'd found in England when I was 12 called Advanced Country Techniques. Mm -hmm. It was way too advanced for me at that point. <laughs> but I learned so much from it just from perseverance and watching and listening and watching and I knew Albert had played on Luxury Liner even though I'd never heard it and couldn't find a copy of it anywhere. But I'd read about it. Um, so, yeah, it was. It was a huge, you know, it was another thing like checking off on my list of dream collaborative kind of experiences. Um, and then, you know, getting to play twin stuff with Steve Fischel, who was playing pedal steel in the band. Mm -hmm. Byron House. Um, it's in the first tour we did, and uh, Jerry Rowe, 
Chris Tuttle playing keys. It was a super fun band. It was like, you know, really a good safe place to um, to be, you know, to be musical and to be fulfilled and not feel like, um, you know, my solo hopes and dreams were sort of at stake. It was just a good, safe place to be for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, you know, there's, you know, footage that you can find from Austin City Limits and other live performances that uh, you can see, you know, again, kind of some hot band things, then Rodney might do Rock of My Soul or mm. some of these, uh, some of Emmy stuff where you're kind of having to cover everything from the, the Albert Lee, James Burton thing to the Daniel Lanois to the Stuart Smith and all these yeah. other kinds of, uh, you know, great, you know, historic guitar playing. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah it was such a great guitar gig. Yeah. Was, you know, so many great players have been a part of their music. So did Emily or Rodney ask you to like, you know, really replicate, you know, the parts that were on there? Did they give you some freedom there? There was a few things, signature things that they wanted like they were, um, you know, just like intros and things. But otherwise they were very much like, you know, take it for a ride, you know, be play it like you hear it, be yourself. Um, you know, there are no rules. It was awesome. So when did you start kind of getting the, the hunger to do another solo record? Uh, I didn't really start thinking about that until I was like, uh, I got pretty dark there for a few years. When that touring finished up, I was living in LA and um, I was about to become a dad. And um, my now wife and I, who um, is the mother of our beautiful child, two children, um, uh, I was sort of, the wheels were coming off and I was terrified of, you know, looming fatherhood and had a lot of stuff I wasn't dealing with, and I was, you know, pretty miserable, really miserable. I mean, waking up pitiful. Uh, so I had tried to get sober a couple times before that, and I could go a couple months here and there, and I'd be feeling good, and then I'd, you know, drift back into the darkness, and then um, two weeks before my son was born, um, I was actually having a conversation with a really great musician, somebody I really admired, and I was really, really messed up. And I couldn't even hold a conversation as I was, I was very aware that what was coming out of my mouth and what I was trying to communicate wasn't coming across and it was embarrassing and it was uh, humiliating and it was the final straw for me. Mm -hmm. So the next day um, I woke up and I was like, all right, I got to make a change and uh, that'll be four years next month, four years ago. Um, 
So I kind of went cold turkey for a while and then started going to some meetings. Went to a place called Onsite outside of Nashville and did a lot of work, a lot of therapy and started to get my mental health together. Mm-hmm. Once I did that, I actually started finding uh, some creative hope again in my own music. Before that, I'd really hung up any hopes and dreams of uh, creating my own music. I was so disconnected with uh, my own musicality. I think I found refuge in helping others and collaborating in that way and, and that was great for a long time. But I think what was ultimately keeping me awake at night was finding my own voice again and finding my own music. So, you know, with some, about a year of sobriety under my belt, I started writing songs for myself again. And um, staying up late, I put my son to bed and I would lock myself in a spare bedroom and stare into the darkness (laughs) and try to find something that felt like it was me and something that I wanted to say that felt honest. And I did that for a year and a half until I had 10 songs that felt good. And um, and I was recording them during that time. I, was, I would fly to LA and track things with Matt Chamberlain, who had become a friend of mine, and we'd worked on a few records together. And we'd do basic tracks together. I'd bring those home overdub on those and then um, tracked a few things here with some friends and guys I've been playing with in town, Chris McHugh and Tony Lucido, Jimmy Wallace, and um, things I would build just by myself. And that became a body of work, West, and that was, I was super proud of it and put it out a couple months ago. So- it's a great album, and Thanks. I, I must admit, you know, when I when I first you know, listening to it, I didn't think I exp- I didn't certainly didn't expect a Stone Cold Country album at all. Mm. But I was, uh, you know, of course the the themes of it were were darker at times, mm. and uh, and then the use of uh, some really neat guitar sounds, you know, fuzz and and uh, the the strings that are used, you know, throughout throughout the album. Yeah. Uh, it's a beautiful sounding record. Thanks. So, yeah. Thanks. And so you have been uh, pulling double duty in that you've been, you know, you've been playing in Vince Gill's band, mm. and you've been opening the shows, you know, playing songs off your record, uh, you know, solo, you know, just yeah. you, you and an acoustic guitar. Yeah. So. <laughs> what, <laughs> so nothing you, to hide Nothing exactly. So uh, how much counts. preparation did you put into that? Um, very little, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> well, after the Patty Loveless story, I expect. <laughs> yeah, um, I had no time. Yeah. I mean, uh, we were about to have a, our second child, and um, you know, um, just life in general. It's always so busy around yeah. our house, and I kept thinking, like, man, I've got to work up a set list. You know, I've got to work up this 25 minutes, 20 minutes to open the show and I had this sort of list of songs in my head but honestly until the first day we were on tour 
Um, we got in early and I had about two hours up my sleeve and I was like, all right, I better dig in here. And, um, you know, I mean, I changed up songs here and there. One thing about this record, though, is the songs that are on it that I did end up recording, I spent a lot of time on them, writing them. And I spent a lot of time figuring out how to play them and sing them because, um, I don't know, I, I sort of, I mean, I've been writing songs for years, but I've never written songs from a really guitar-oriented standpoint. Like, it's always been like, you know, B chord, A chord, E chord. But these songs sort of became like um, uh, as important on guitar as the lyrics were, you know? Like there's a song called Animal Eyes that's... Um, I found this tuning. Um, it's nothing revolutionary, but B is my favorite key. And playing out of B, when you flatten the G string to F sharp, you suddenly have an open, a way to play around that G string without being scared of it, because it's always in the way normally. So you would find like... And I found this riff. Thanks. Uh, so and, once and I had that, I figured out, all right, now I've got to find something to say. Right. <laughs> and there's, there's two versions of the song that you can hear, one that's with the full production on it and one that's just acoustic. Yeah. And it's neat to, uh, to hear the song just uh, acoustic and vocal. It almost has a little bit more of an Appalachian kind of uh, you know, old world or something mm. you know, quality to it. Yeah, so, thanks. But, uh, it's interesting because when you when you flatten out that G string, um, what you do is basically you create a space for major and minor thirds. Uh, you you create a space that gives them impact. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize this until I was talking to Jordan Lenning about it. He composed and arranged the strings for the song. He said, man, you do this thing where it's like, it's a very root fifth based, which leaves this space for like, when thirds happen, like they seem very impactful. And I didn't realize it when I was writing it at all. And I don't know much about theory anyway, but um, I've actually found that in my playing, once he said that, I started to analyze what I was doing a bit. 
And I was like, it's actually kind of a common theme in my playing is for some reason, thirds, I'm really weary of thirds, <laughs> especially major thirds. Yeah. Well, also in the, in the studio, those are, uh, those are the, the, the notes that, that tend to really shout out if you're out of tune also. It seems if you, yeah. if you skip those thirds, it also kind of helps things mesh together better yeah. in a way. Yeah. So. I think I started to figure that out in session world too, yeah. It's like, you know, thirds are very much, you know, a singer's territory as far as, you know, defining that, you know, space melodically. So, uh, you know, certainly weary of that. Yeah. So again, the tuning was you just dropped down the G to an F sharp. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty simple. Hmm. There's another one I came up with too, which... Um, kind of interesting. I should look at my tuner. Um, I don't know if this is a definitive Nick Drake tuning, but I found this thing where if you drop the A string to an E, oh, wow. you have double low E's, and then you drop the G to an E. So you have this as the open sound, but then you can I was just fooling around with that one day and that was how I came up with the song The Dreamer on the record. I was kind of like fooling around with that tuning. The tuning thing is super annoying if you don't have multiple acoustic guitars live. <laughs> <laughs> So, so are you re so you're retuning in front of everyone. Yeah. <laughs> wow! Yeah. So have you gotten really good at telling a story while you retune? I mean, you'd have to ask, you know, the two thousand people that are standing out there watching me tune with their eyebrows cocked. But you know, there's no other way to play some of those songs. So I was like, you know, I gotta right. come up with some kind of story to tell these people while I'm somehow detuning and figuring this stuff out. So that was good practice. You know, working with with Vince Gill, what what's what's rubbed off? What you know, what as a as a band leader, because you know, he's you know he he's not just an artist. I mean, he's a obviously a serious player songwriter. What kind of direction is is Vince Gill giving you, and what are you learning from him? So much. I mean, being in his band is like everything you're doing has got to count and must be important. And being a part of an ensemble like that with Paul Franklin and um, John Jarvis and Charlie Worsham, Wendy Moten, um, Jimmy Lee Slos was out with us this year, Billy Thomas playing drums. You know, it's, there's a lot of rhythmic elements going on, Vince playing, and um, finding things that 
add to the picture, but, you know, aren't overbearing in that, in that sense, quarterly and rhythmically. So, yeah, so how do you, in a band that size, with that many great players, how do you find, how do you find your space? Um, I mean, uh, it kind of takes a minute, I feel like. At least it did for me. It does for me. Because I have so much trouble playing the same thing twice anyway. Um, you know, it was a great lesson in rhythm guitar for me. It's certainly not my strong point. So it was good. It was like I had to really bear down on my rhythm playing and be supportive, um, which is, you know, which was good for me, ultimately, I think. Um, uh, you know, being a solid rhythm player behind solos is really hard when you're just like listening to one of your favorite guitar players playing so great and you've got to concentrate on what you're doing, but you're listening to him, but you've got to concentrate. Um, <laughs> it was kind of like a personal mental warfare, like, you know, trying to steal licks, but trying to play rhythm in time. Learned any tricks from Vince? I mean, taste. The guy yeah. has some of the greatest taste in the world. He's, his taste is, you know, unbelievable. That's why he's been one of my favorite guitar players for years. Um, and like, especially this year, it was amazing to see somebody who's has such a definitive style still trying to find new things and interesting things in the heat of battle and solos, you know, like looking for new things. It's awesome. It's really like inspiring. Um, Did you start working with Vince before he was working with the Eagles also? I think my first year with him was his first year out with him. I, th okay. I think that's right. I came on with a tour and then I think he started up with them. Yeah. Do you think working with the Eagles has changed Vince at all, like in the way that he approaches his solo stuff, or the way he leads? Mm, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I think he really enjoys playing out, you know, playing his own shows, because um, he loves playing guitar and he loves singing his own songs. And, right, and have, yeah. having the freedom. Yeah. That he has when, when you're the artist. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. What's up in 2020 for, for Jed? 2020. Um, well, firstly, um, we are relocating to Santa Cruz, California. Very nice. Which I'm super pumped about. It'll be warm. It'll be warm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We might get a little more sunshine in January and February, which will be good. Um, I'm not much for the southern winters, so and my wife's from California, so... We're going to head west, and, um, and then I'm going to be out um, playing shows behind this record, house concerts, and um, just trying to get my music out there again. 
Great. Yeah. Yeah. So people get on Spotify or however you you listen to music, and you've got to check out you know West. Yeah. So let's uh, let let's talk gear some. I, yep. You've been holding this beautiful Tysco this whole time. Tell us a bit about this guitar. So yeah. You were saying this came from Jeff Sin. Yeah. Uh, I've had this for years. This is rebuilt, refinished by Jeff. Did an incredible job. Um, yeah, it's a early or mid '60s, maybe. Tysco K2L Shark Fin, I think they call it. This is the nickname, and um, has these square pole pickups that I'm pretty sure Jeff potted, um, which probably need potting again. Because when I'm using this on a tracking session, if I'm in the same room as the drums, I can hear the drums through these pickups. <laughs> it's hilarious. I usually don't say anything unless the engineer does, because I actually think it sounds cool. But um, it's been awesome. I think it's some kind of mahogany, like a, you know, Asian mahogany or like from somewhere. They're great guitars. It's quite striking. And so it looks like you had a three-way selector switch, volume and tone, and then what, what are these little switches up front? So these are disabled, but, nor okay. but normally these turn the pickups on and off. And then this is a cut switch. Okay. So when the switch is on, um, it's actually just giving you full output. Or when it's off, it's giving you full output of the pickups, and when it's on, right. it's actually just cutting which is really useful. I gotta have Jeff wire it back in because it's killer for like rhythm right. rhythm stuff and then like bumping up for solos. Oh. But right now it's um, functional as a three-way. I kept bumping these switches when I was playing. Yeah. So I had Jeff put in a three-way and, and then um, a tunematic. Yeah, and, and what type of, oh yes, yeah, you changed that out to a tunematic. What kind of strings and picks do you use? Um, these are just regular D'Addario's, tens. Okay. Fender medium picks, yeah. Analysis Plus cables, which I've used for years. These are awesome. They're like you cannot break these cables. I've, I've probably had these for like ten years. They've been amazing. Wow. Um, and they sound great. Uh, this is my Ebo Customs Del Rio amp. That's um, awesome. Great reverb. Yeah. Yeah. It's killer. It's it's got uh, well. Let's just play it. It's really nice. Like it doesn't have any of that low end mud that you would want to, you know, put a high pass on or something. It's already very tuned. I've got my old memory man. I bought that at Nashville used music for 50 bucks when I first moved to Nashville. <laughs> and it didn't work. And it's only because the power cable wasn't connected properly. So um, I've used that on every session I've ever played. And I still think it's the best one I've ever had. <laughs> I've tried to find other ones. I've had a dozen or more 
old memory mans and mm -hmm. none of them for some reason sound like that one but it's probably been fixed a few times you know i'm sure it's not all original but yeah it's awesome so we'll Go through the board. Looks like we've got the the polytone tuner and then the Durham sex drive. Uh, did you, you know, what does the sex drive do on your on, for your tone? Man, I've I've had this for forever. In fact, most of this stuff is the most dependable um, go-to stuff that I've had for a long time. Um, the sex drive, I love it. It's awesome actually stacking this in front of fuzz pedals, okay. which I don't have a fuzz on here right now, but but what it's really good for too is like um, rental amps on fly gigs. Mm -hmm. um, if I find a clean tone with a rental amp, I can put the sex drive on in front of it and get it to react a little more like on the edge of breakup, which I like to be able to do. So I can turn the guitar down for my clean sound, turn it back up when I'm digging in harder. Um, it's really good for that. Yeah, sure. So like... What I might do is like... Kind of gives you the feeling like the like the power tubes are working a little harder. Right, and just a touch of hair. Just a little that. hair on there. Good boost pedal, the Nobels, which I just got a couple days ago from my friend Brett Moore. <laughs> I haven't had one of these forever because I felt like I was so dependent on it for a long time. And then I got one again and I realized why I was so dependent on it for a long time. Because it's awesome. You can't beat them. That's great. So Jed, tell us about this uh, tremolo pedal here. This yeah, this is the old, the VFE old school. Mike Moody turned me onto this, and this is my favorite tremolo. And I always leave it on because it kind of, I'll show you. On. It kind of brightens, clears out the. It opens up the mid-range. It, it's kind of congested and then it opens it yeah, up. Yeah, it's crazy, man. <laughs> and then you can, I just kind of kick this with my foot when I want to turn it on. So it's like, you know, it's like having it in line, like a blackface amp or something. And then it has this cool, this is kind of noisy always on all of them. But when you turn this little wave thing, it's like this little internal trim pot. It gives you this great broken amp sound, which I like. Turn it up with that. All, 
all of a sudden it sounds like you have an, like an old glitchy tremolo amp. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome, man. The only thing you got to watch is like that you don't kick, kick that on a gig, but this knob doesn't touch it, so it's, you know, I just uh, and remember I'm, to leave it off. I'm assuming you put a larger knob there to, uh, to make it easier to, uh, yeah. to, to, to yeah. control with your, with your shoe. Yeah. yeah, that's what you want. Yeah. And then next in line is this uh, gear tone compressor, which Vince turned me on to. And um, I hadn't used compressors in years and years. I always kind of use them. Like I'll use an 1176 or something if I'm working at home. Um, I just haven't used them on a pedal board in ages. And then I heard him kick this on one day and I was like, oh man, that sounds good. So... that for more sort of country-oriented, clean tone kind of boost, you know? Then I always have this the Boss EQ around, which has the mid-range mod from XTS. So how would you tend to use it? Um, I would use it as a boost, like for solos, or um, if I have a guitar that has like a hotter output, I'll kind of set it like, like you can hear me talking through this thing. Um, I'll use it as a, like, a, like a limiter, I guess, to where I'll set it to where I'm, when I click it on, it's not crazy louder. Right. You know, like have some guitars that have way more output. So um, it just kind of tames those down. You already mentioned the memory man, so then you've got this even-tied rose. Yeah. This is on. This is on trial run. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm loving it so far. The only one thing that happened is I hit the hot switch accidentally, and it started uh, running away on a gig the other day, and it scared the hell out of me. <laughs> So I got to read the manual. But this, <laughs> this is the closest thing I've found to sound like this. Okay. So it's kind of like I've been trying to find. So it's got the modulated repeats. Yeah, and... I've been trying to find a backup for a long time. Like. I try to get to the delays to sound like reverb. to um, be too present. Pretty close. Nice. Then you have that. There, there's something about the preamp also on the uh, on the memory man. Yeah. Yeah, and so. also the um, the envelope of the attack. You can really push and pull the, um, I was thinking about this the other day, which I haven't found in any other delay. 
if you play lightly with the memory man, it'll mash out for you. If you play harder, it'll give you the repeats harder. So you can kind of like tug a war, push and pull it around to kind of do what you want. Which th that's, the, that's the thing I try to find with all pedals is like some kind of elastic dynamic quality to where it's not holding back whatever I'm doing with my right hand. All of this stuff has to be reactive. It can't dictate what I'm doing. Otherwise, I can't get along with it. It just doesn't last. Let's hear the, the telly that you brought. Yeah. This is a 57 telly. It's got a bunch of changes. It's refinished. Um, this is a funny story. I was at Tom Bukovac's one night and Rick Reith, his old roommate, was over. A mate of ours, he was telling us this hilarious story about his grandpa giving him a telly, which he took to shop class and decided would look really great with the natural finish. So he took all the finish off of it. <laughs> put, this, <laughs> put this nice, uh, clean, uh, clear coat on. And then he lost the guitar like 30 years ago. Like, um, you know, traded it or something. And he was like, I know it when I'll see it because it has this crazy flame in the body. And that is some crazy flame on a yeah, it's 50s telly. it's really unusual. And we kind of all laughed and we were like, yeah, right, like you'll see that again. And then that night I got home, and as I always do before I go to bed, I look at which telecasters have been put up for sale <laughs> that day. Because <laughs> you have a sickness. <laughs> because I'll always be a total telly nut. And on reverb... Dave's Guitars in Wisconsin had just listed this guitar and I was like looking at it and I was like, wow, that's weird. It has this weird flame in the body and I sent it to Rick and I was like, man, is, is this the guitar you were telling us about? And he was like, oh my God, that's it. So he drove up and bought it and um, he had it for a minute. I went over and played it and immediately I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. And... Um, you know, I think Book had it for a minute, got it refretted by Greg Verose, who did an incredible job, and just got it, you know, back to battle ready, playing condition, and then I swindled it away from Book. Actually, he very kindly said, I think you should have this guitar because you're the one that found it. And I said, I think you're right. Would you tell my wife that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what you would want that to do, right? Yeah, let's hear, hear the other. <laughs> Thank you. 
I changed the saddles to brass saddles because um, I don't know why I did that, but they sound better than the steel saddles that were on there. I think I, w I was trying to tame down a little bit of the, the, woolly, the raggedness of this pickup maybe or something. But uh, I think an intonation too, maybe I had to tweak that, but um, you know, it does exactly what I would want a, a telly to do. It's a great pickup. This is a teench dark for me, but that's okay. You know. Well, let's hear the, uh, the telly with the compressor and give us some... Uh... Oh yeah. <laughs> about this beautiful Collings guitar that you have. Yeah, this is a Collings OM1A JL based on Julian Large's uh, late 30s, triple O18. And um, I've been playing the same acoustic guitar for about the last 20 years almost, um, which is a Brazilian Rosewood Dreadnought that a friend of mine built in Australia. But um, it's been thrown around so much. And after every flight, when I come home, I was just like sweating opening the case because it's been rebuilt by Joe Glazer twice. And finally, um, my friend that built the guitar passed away. And um, I just thought, you know, I, I, I cannot just drag this thing around anymore. Much as I love it. So I take it with me when I'm not flying, but um, I've been friends with Steve McCreary for years at Collings, and I've always loved Collings instruments. They're amazing. But, um, you know, until I found one that I was willing to sign off on, <laughs> I've been holding out. And he sent me this a couple months ago, and I was just blown away right off the bat. It's like super light, has this great vintagey feeling, super comfortable neck. It's a great taper, like gets gets bigger up here, and um, it's really even and responsive.
It has this great thing I call trigger notes. Where like certain things will ping the reverb in the guitar. And they'll fold over the next note you play. That's a good one. That one. I always look for that in acoustic guitars because I love it when they do that. Um, so this is my new squeeze. I had a K and K pickup put in it the other day, and it's gonna come out on the road from now on. So, how is your approach to playing acoustic different than playing electric? Um, well, I started out. I had an acoustic for years before I could afford to buy an electric. So um, I played a lot of acoustic guitar before I had a Telecaster. And um, over the years, I think I've learned to find as many ways as possible to work an acoustic guitar when it's just me singing and playing. Um, to get as much dynamic range as I can out of the instrument. So there's a few little tricks I've learned, like flipping the pick around, using the round corner, um, and then using the sharp corner for certain things. Um, for instance, I'll always start on the round, rounded edge of a pick. As opposed to... Pretty big tonal difference. Um, with my left hand, also I do this thing I don't even think about, which I'm sure a lot of people do, but I play with my fingers a lot, which is easier to do when you're humming through a big PA or something, but. Even parts of your fingers I've found can have brighter and darker sounds. Like um, like this top side of your thumb, you can like soften the attack. For instance, the difference between that and this finger is a much brighter tone. You know, vibrato, using your vibrato with your left hand is great for pulling the sustain out of the guitar. In fact, I hadn't thought about this, but I was talking to Paul Franklin the other day and we were talking about this term he came up with called pulling tone. And he said, um, he started talking about it and I was, I was like, man, I don't really know what you're talking about. He was like, well, you know, when you're soloing, he said you're in the intensity of your attack with your hands is how you, is how you pull a sound out of what you're doing. He said, I do it by the weight of my bar, the way I'm pushing down on the pedal steel and the, and the attack of my right hand. And he said, I've watched you do it with solos where you, 
it's like you hammer down on what you're doing. As opposed to... And I guess it's in relation to sustain, but it also, I've found that um, by doing that, uh, you can you can make things speak in a way that is um, impactful when you're trying to like go from the bottom of the valley to the top of the mountain with the arc of what you're doing, you know. So, for instance, like, I don't know, something like this. You know, just the way you can light and shade what wow. you're doing. Yeah, the the variation between the, you know, the using just your fingers, using the pick. Yeah, you had you had a nice, you had a great dynamic range, and certain parts had more intensity than others. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I sort of feel like when it's you and the guitar against the world, you can need as much ammo as <laughs> you can possibly <laughs> carry. Are these uh, nickel bronze strings or? Uh, yeah, yeah. Those yeah. Those? These are what they come with from the factory. Okay. Um, which I kind of like on this guitar. They're cool. Well, Jed, I really appreciate you taking the time to come down here and be on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, a real treat. Thank you. Thanks, Zach. Yeah.